In a scene from the Lord of the Rings, the diminutive hobbit named Pippin faces the fact that he's really never going to grow any taller. And speaking with some of his companions, he admits, I'm not likely to grow anymore, except sideways. Human beings like hobbits, we quickly reach that stage of physical development where we, the only way we're likely to grow is sideways. And for the many of us who are fairly vertically challenged, the realization that we've reached that horizontal-only phase is really not a very happy one, is it? But here's the real tragedy. A person reaches a stage of skill in living and discernment at which he or she is unlikely to grow any way but sideways. Through the passage of time, she gains new experiences. She learns some new tricks in life. But the growth is all sideways. Her soul doesn't gain new stature. He gains years of experience, but the gears of his inner being get stuck at age 14, and he doesn't move past. Married couples can pile up wedding anniversaries. They can grow sideways. Yet they reach a place in their relationship where nothing goes forward. No more growth. No more stature. A church can gain experience and reputation, but stop growing deeper in its capacity to live wisely and to be discerning in this world. It grows sideways, but it doesn't grow deeper. It doesn't grow taller in its real inner being. For human beings, it's easy to grow old. It's a lot harder to grow up. This book of Proverbs is written for people who want to grow up. It's written for people anxious to develop moral skill and spiritual discernment and thus to grow in inner stature. It's written for people who refuse to get stuck at age 14. People who want to grab hold of the wisdom that God gives to those who honor His counsel. We looked last week at Proverbs chapter 2 and we noted there this call to go on the path of God, to go on to take the path of wisdom, to turn away from the path that leads to moral folly. Now chapter 3 follows hard on chapter 2, and it really begins to flesh out the idea as we take this path of wisdom, where does it lead? How will we change? What will be true of our lives as we heed the wisdom of God, as we choose His path, and as we say to all other paths, no, I'm going to go hard after the wisdom of God. I want to become a person skillful at living in His eyes. I want to develop discernment that sees life from the perspective of the God who made it. How does that look? How does that life of wisdom begin to flesh itself out within our experience? As we look at the first 12 verses of Proverbs 3 today, there are six couplets of verses, not all divided exactly that way, but really there are six couplets here. There is an ethical condition. Do this. Head this direction. And then, following that ethical condition, in the second verse of the couplet, there's the prosperous result in the life of the one who honors that condition. 
Now, in these couplets, we find then six characteristics of a growing soul, of a person who is growing in stature within. Not just growing old, but someone who's really growing up in God. What does that look like? The list is by no means exhaustive, but it gives us a clear picture of that kind of person. The first characteristic of a wise soul is found in the first two verses. The condition, the ethical condition, the call upon us in verse 1. My son, remembering the setting, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. So the father again speaking to the son, and all of us maybe should picture this, is God in a sense sitting across the table from us and saying, my son, my daughter, hear my words. Hear the cry of my heart for you, what I desire for you. Don't forget, don't forget my teaching. Now that doesn't mean, oh, I lost memory of it. That's important, of course, but it means do not neglect it. Don't neglect this teaching. Don't set it aside. Don't ignore it. But rather, let your heart keep my commandments. The wise soul internalizes the truth, prizes it, guards it as something exceedingly precious. This is very different than the person who's out there trying to find their way, listening to this voice and that voice, searching through this idea and that, always trying to put life together a little better. No, this is one that says the Word of God is all I need. I don't mean by that nothing that anyone else has written, just the Bible as such, but it is when it comes to truth and the core, this teaching that you grab onto and you keep with your heart. This is the word that matters. Let your heart keep my commandments. Internalize it. See it as exceedingly precious. And what's the result? Verse 2. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. This isn't simply a promise of longevity. I don't know that it's that necessarily at all. It's a proverbial statement. But length of days and years of life speaks of leading a full life. Prize the words of God and you will have a life that is full and rich. You will be growing in spiritual stature. Embrace God's counsel. It will enrich and it will deepen you is the promise. You notice that word peace there in verse 2. That's that Hebrew word, one of the Hebrew words almost everybody knows. The word shalom. Very difficult to translate. But the idea here in this context is of wholesomeness, a quality of life. By treasuring God's counsel, by heeding His word, you will experience an inner peace and contentment. You will experience shalom. This is something that's very much lacking in the soul that has grown old, but is only growing sideways. This is peace and contentment that only God can give because we treasure His Word. The second couplet speaks of steadfast love and faithfulness toward others. This is what we're to pursue, verse 3. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Let's understand this condition first. Binding and writing. These are figurative ideas of internalizing these qualities. What is steadfast love? Again, the English somewhat fails us here. 
Here is another Hebrew word, at least in this church you've probably heard before, that has said of God. The steadfast love of God is His character, and we are to flesh that out in our lives. It speaks of, ra- of, of relational fidelity. It's often used in context of covenantal loyalty. So the soul that is growing deeper in God is a soul that is steadfastly loyal and faithful to its covenantal relationships. And I take the, the text that way, that this is calling us to put on steadfast love. God obviously relates to us with this covenant loyalty, but we too are to be people of faithfulness to our covenant relationships. We think of, very obviously for us, the marital relationship as a covenant between a man and a woman, giving themselves to one another for life, to enjoy the relationship that God has given to them. Couples proving steadfastly loyal to one another. That's how we deepen. That's how we grow. We think of the covenant with the local church. Members proving steadfastly loyal to one another and our calling to build one another up in the faith. And we think of the covenant that we have with God. Believers loyal to the new covenant Jesus has established with them through His death and resurrection. So that we are to become people of covenant loyalty, of fidelity, of trustworthiness. Of the next word, faithfulness. Very similar word. It speaks of reliability, dependability, faithfulness, much like this word has said. What does it say to us? Spiritually stunted people are not dependable. They're fickle. They're fickle in their relationships with one another. They're fickle in their relationships with God. They're flip-flopping, unreliable, and unsteady souls. Walk the path of wisdom, and that's not the kind of person that you'll become. You'll become a person who keeps their word. A person of steadfast, loyal, covenant-keeping fidelity, of faithful reliability. These virtues, as they characterize our life, as we put them on, binding them around us, making them, internalizing these ideas, what is the prosperous result? Verse 4, again in the second half of this couplet, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Loyalty, fidelity, and dependability are attractive. They're attractive to God. They're attractive to man. When we see somebody who's steady and faithful and doesn't turn away when circumstances dictate from the loyalties of one's covenant, we find that attractive. Generally speaking, people will see a certain depth and spiritual stature that is pleasing to them. This does not mean you'll be popular with everyone. In fact, sometimes this covenant loyalty, this loyalty, this fidelity will make some people angry. And they might not like you. But generally speaking, this is a quality that will enrich our life and be evident to others. And it's a really remarkable prospect when you think about it. It's not terribly difficult to gain the praise of man. But to at the same time gain the praise of God? Now that's a gift. That's the grace of the Lord. 
to live such a life, to have such an experience. It can only be the work of God's grace in us as we reflect His covenant-keeping loyalty to us. As we see that in Him and as we reflect that out to one another, it's His work in us to have such fidelity. The next two verses, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. How often has that reference passed your lips? I'm not sure there are any two verses in the Bible that are as well known and as least honored as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. As well memorized and less applied. But they're beautiful. And we recognize that. And we need to put this on. Here's the condition. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. It's not difficult to understand what those words are saying, but I do think if we dip down into it a little bit, it can be helpful to us. The word trust is to rely upon, often used in context where a person relies on someone else for security. Trust in the Lord in that way. Rely upon Him. Throw yourself in dependence upon Him. And do so, it says, with all of your heart. Which I think brings out two ideas. We are called to trust the Lord with our entire being. All of your heart means all that you have. Throw your whole being in dependence upon the Lord. But I think then, not only that unreserved dependence, but I think it also speaks of an exclusive dependence. I'm not trusting in other gods as I trust in the Lord with all my heart. In Him and Him alone do I find this confidence and this place of leaning. We're not to lean on our own understanding. Does this mean we don't think or plan or figure things out? No. It means we do not rely upon our wisdom while ignoring God's counsel. We demonstrably say, I am living in dependence upon the Lord. I don't listen first to my own voice. I listen first to His. And I have matured to the point where I realize that listening to my voice, I sometimes fail myself. He never does. His Word is always dependable. My word, my counsel, shakes and sometimes breaks and shatters underneath me. This word leaning could be used of, a, of leaning on a crutch and the crutch breaks. As a chaplain, I was once called to the scene of a terrible accident where a painter was working on a platform and the legs of the platform shattered and he fell to his death. That's kind of, I think, the picture that's here. There's tragedy in the making when we lean on our own understanding. You lean on it. You depend upon it. You say, I know how to live for me. I think this is the best way to go. And somewhere down the line, the legs shatter. And it's a disaster. Don't lean 
on your own understanding. It will fail. But lean wholeheartedly and dependently and absolutely on the Lord. That's our calling here. We see that. We know that. But to flesh it out this way, may we be committed to it. In fact, in all of our ways to acknowledge Him. Uh, The idea there is not that the tip of the hat at God, a nod of the head acknowledging that God is there. In all our ways, acknowledging Him means that in everything that I do, my life is filtered through God. He's at the center, at the core, the hub of my life. All of life filtered through the grid of His counsel. All of life submitted to His Lordship. As the Spirit of God works within us today to bring conviction, we know there's areas of life that are not submitted to Him. Where would you say, in all of my ways, acknowledging Him, here is where that is not working out in my life. Here's where I'm not applying that as I should. Think on that. As God speaks through His Word today, as His Spirit works within you, say, in that area, I'm not growing In that area, I'm a disaster. By His grace, may we repent and turn, and may we seek His will. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. And what is the prosperous result? The second half of verse 6, and He will make straight your paths. That doesn't mean He'll make your life easy. Let's get that off the table right here. That's not what He's saying. God will get you where you need to go, is the idea. He will open the way. And that doesn't mean that God will use liver shivers or putting out fleeces or learning to interpret open doors or finding fortune cookie verses that are going to make your path straight. No, it means that God will go before you to clear the path and bring you all the way home. This is just an outworking of that trust. I trust in Him to get me where He's taking me. And I can trust that He's taking me where I should go. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding and He will make your path straight. He will bring you home. He will take you where you need to go. By way of contrast, the wicked take twisted paths that lead to all sorts of trouble. They don't get to where they should be going. It starts with a absolute dependent trust in the Lord in all things. The next couplet, verse 7, brings out the idea, the characteristic of humble submission to what is right. We'll draw these all together again uh, in just a while, but thinking on this next one, a humble submission to what is right. Verse 7, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Don't be wise in your own eyes. People who get stuck at age 14 rely on their own cleverness, their know-it-alls. They see everything just the way it's supposed to be. Just ask them. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Every one of us is wise in our own eyes by nature. We see how everything's supposed to be. Even if it's other people aren't supposed to see how everything's supposed to be. We get it all. We see it. We, we have it a certain way. It's supposed to work like this. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Rather than self-centered pride, we're to fear the Lord. And in the fear of God, we're to turn away from evil, as we see here. 
Don't be wise in your own eyes, but fear God and turn away from evil. That's the opposite of it. People who lean on God admit they don't have life figured out. They admit they need to learn and grow and that wisdom does not end with them. And so in the fear of God, in the reverence of God, they turn away from what He says is wrong and they pursue what is right because it starts with humility to say the counsel of God is to be heeded. And so what they hear and see and do and value, how they plan their futures, in all of it they demonstrate this reverence for the Lord and this hatred of sin. That's a person that's growing. The notion that we would throw ourselves upon the wisdom and protection of someone else is unnatural. This is a radically countercultural statement once again. To look beyond myself and to say that there is another out there whose wisdom I must assume, whose wisdom I must depend upon, whose wisdom I must put into play. This is very different living. But for us, this call to look upward for the source of wisdom makes perfect sense. For those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior, we've been schooled in this. Christ brings us to this place. For true believers, we've learned that true power comes not through dominance. Not through being a know-it-all. It comes through submission. And it comes through humiliation. I come to a place where I see myself in abject spiritual poverty. And there's an answer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who's the wise man? Who's the powerful man? There's this raging river. And one man says, I'm a man of great power and strength. And I'll prove it. And he dives into the water to fight the raging waters in his own strength, his own ability to swim. The other man says, I'll go on the same water, but I'm going to take a raft. And I'm going to trust the raft. Well, the man that's out there flailing about in the rapids is an idiot. He's not having fun. He's drowning. And that's a picture of pride. Rather than submitting to the wisdom of God, we're out there in the rapids trying to fight it in our own strength to do things our own way. We revere only ourselves. That is a stunted soul. One growing in spiritual stature is one of humble submission to what is right. Yielding to the raft of God's Word and of His protective Spirit. And the prosperous result of this, verse 8, it will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. You'll be in the raft and you'll find, I'm alive. I'm enjoying this. I'm not fighting the world in my own strength and my own wisdom, but I'm relying upon the Lord's and it, and it brings strength, refreshment. These words in the Hebrew text are a little beyond us and so the versions uh, differ quite a bit, but healing to your flesh is really healing to your navel, which I don't know about you, but I haven't been thinking about health of my navel here recently. It doesn't work for us, but it's, it's a way of saying that, that your whole being is alive and well. This refreshment to the bones speaks of moist bones, 
Again, it's not something that concerned me this week, but, but, but as, as we think through their, their grid and how they would take this, it's speaking of that prosperous life of being really alive, of having a soul that is refreshed. Here's where this leads. Humble submission to right in the reverence of the Lord leads to a life that's alive and well. Now there's a radical shift here. But we move on to another one at verse 8. Another couplet. Verse 9 rather. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. We're going from a, a humble, submissive relationship to God. Now we're talking money. And now, as they say, the preacher's gone to meddling, right? Well, the preacher's the Lord here. Here's the ethical condition. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits. The first fruits are are giving to God first. That I look at my wealth from the standpoint of giving to the Lord. That's consideration number one. And the first fruits was also symbolic of the very best of what we have. So I look at this world and I say in all of its wonder, God gives to us wealth so that we first of all start with the capacity to advance His cause and to worship His name. Jesus has taught us it doesn't matter how much we have. It's not about the amount. It's about the heart attitude and the percentage. Small, shriveled souls hoard wealth and squander their resources on frivolous, selfish pursuits. They want money for me. People growing sideways keep accumulating money, but they do not learn the discipline of giving and worship to God, and they don't know the depths of joy there is in such an orientation to money. When we give the first fruits of our wealth to the Lord, we seize an opportunity to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and not lean on our own understanding. In my understanding, the way I figure out math is you put money in the plate, you've lost money. Right? You can't use that money to do what you want with it. But God puts His arm around and says, it's a whole different world. I'm the God of all wealth. Give of the first fruits. Meet this condition. The depth of your soul will be tested by the liberality of your giving to me in worship. And when you honor me, giving liberally and faithfully in worship, here's the, here's the result, verse 10. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. We have an agrarian culture here, obviously, if you filled our barns with Grain, as a couple of us maybe, but uh, generally that's not going to get us anywhere, is it? We don't have grain, we don't have vats of new wine. But you get the point, don't you? God does not remain in our debt. Now, I, I think we have to stop here because of false teaching in our day. This is not a promise that if you give to God, He'll give to you more. Simple equation. You give to Him, He'll make you rich. There's some who've taken it that way. There's a subtlety in this promise that I think really argues against that. And I'm dependent here on Matthew Henry who noted that God does not respond to our giving to Him by lavishing upon us jewelry and rich clothing and fine art to hang in our homes. What does He give you? Grain and wine. Henry writes this, God shall bless thee with an increase of that which is for use. 
not for show or ornament, for spending and laying out, not for hoarding and laying up. They that do good with what they have shall have more to do good with. The profound word. And of course, he is drawing from what the text of Scripture itself says. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 10-11 through 11, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Hear this. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. God will enrich you, and it may be with money, and it may be with ability, it may be with any number of things, but He will enrich you so that you can continue to give. So that your life is a continual flowing and cleansing that takes place in the life of one who receives and then passes on. Not like the one who's a stagnant pond where everything coming in dies. Your barns will be filled with plenty. You can't eat it all. Your vats will be bursting with wine. You can't drink it all. But you can put it back into play. You put wealth into play. You honor me with the first fruits. And I will see that you're able to give in some way, shape, or form and continue to live the life that's an outflow of goodness to others. The final couplet, verse 11. Submissive acceptance of divine discipline. Gone from giving now to suffering. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom He loves as a father the son in whom He delights. Here the result is a little more subtle, but it is the approval of the father. Don't despise the Lord's discipline. We've got to work this out. That, that, that's hard for us to, to grab onto. What does it mean to despise the Lord's discipline? How, how might I do that? It means do not look down upon it or dismiss it. Don't be weary of His correction. The Hebrew word means to loathe, to abhor. It, it often is used to want to throw up. You ever been in that spot? Something really bad has happened and all you want to do is just throw up. You're just sick to your stomach. It just, it just eats away at you and your heart is pained. Have you ever faced such a trial? When we face it with this sick stomach that just wants it to go away, desperately wants it to go away, we may well be despising the discipline of the Lord. Because all we care about is that the pain goes away. One who is growing in spiritual stature, one who's not just growing sideways, who's not just growing old, one who's growing up in God, looks at such trials and says, I'm not going to look at it that way. I'm not going to just be desperate about it going away. God's discipline takes many forms. It has many causes, but it's always corrective. It's always enriching. And I need to realize that no matter what I'm going through, if there's a sovereign God, 
then he's using this for good. Relational trials revealing our weakness, insecurity, our lack of skill, our innate stupidity in loving others. I'm having relational problems. God has a purpose in it. Financial trials, especially the kind we bring on ourselves by being foolish with money, God has a purpose in it. The betrayal of a friend, the loss of health, the death of a loved one, the shattering of a dream, and not to say that they're all on the same level, but in all of these trials and heartaches, God has a purpose in it. Discouragement over a failure, or over failures of many kinds. Looking in the mirror and being sickened by what we see because of the weakness of our personality, because of the sinfulness of our soul, there's a purpose in that trial too. How do we respond when we go through these trials? For people who are only growing sideways, such trials prove overwhelming. They prove hateful. We want to simply escape. And we may be dealing with it the rest of our life. But do we always orient toward it as I want out path to wisdom is not a path to ease and safety. We learn that very clearly here. But it, is, it does have a prosperous result. Verse 12, the Lord reproves him whom he loves as the father of the son in whom he delights. In the problem of pain, C.S. Lewis illustrates this point by, by uh, observing an artist working on his magnum opus and saying that, you know, he may scrape the pain off ten times to get it just right. And we're like that canvas and the scraping of God's trials great against us and they're difficult and we don't like them. Don't despise that. God's not working here on a little simple sketch. He's working here on a masterpiece. He's seeking to conform you as a believer in Christ to the likeness of Jesus, and that's going to take some work and it's going to take some pain. Don't despise the fact that he's scraping off the paint and trying again. Not that God makes mistakes. You understand my illustration. When we complain about our suffering, when we grump, about his discipline and despair when we face trials, we're asking God to love us less, not more. Lewis warns that when we beg for deliverance from all of our trials, we may simply be, in his words, asking God to not take us so seriously. Just leave me alone. That's not trusting in the Lord with all our heart, is it? That's not trusting wholeheartedly in a sovereign God who is orchestrating all things together for, his, for our good, for His glory. That's faithlessness. So Lewis continues in another place, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. Don't despise the shouting voice of God. It hurts. Yes, it's pain. It's suffering. He never tells us it's not. 
but he says, trust my hand. This discipline may be punishment for our sin. It may not be. And I think many times it is not a direct punishment for sin. One has uh, likened it to the military training that one might receive. The threat of punishment is always there. But even the most arduous drill sergeant is not usually meeting out retribution for offenses. There's a discipline here that deepens and develops the soldiers and that's what's needed. And that's how God, in a sense, works with us. But it's not like a drill sergeant. It's like a father who loves us. He puts the screws down into us and sometimes in horrifying ways. But when we trust in the Lord with all of our heart and don't lean on our own understanding, we can know He loves us and is treating us like sons and daughters in Christ. Knowing that the discipline of the Lord through trials is meant for our growth, we learn to rejoice in them. James 1. Knowing trials are intended to teach us not to depend upon ourselves. 2 Corinthians 1.9 We see them not as an instrument of harm and debilitation, but as a tool to mature and deepen and enrich us. <clears throat> I lost a friend on Friday. Pastor Richard Glennie at Northwest Bible in St. Michael's has been dying of cancer for some time and I've had the privilege to meet with him on occasion for lunch and to interact with him. And uh, He spoke God's Word to his flock and he taught them how to live with his teaching and with his preaching, which I know is faithful. But in the end, he taught us all how to die. A few days before he died, suffering great weakness. I understood he, understand he preached his last sermon on a chair to the congregation with very little energies. He wrote this just days before his death. And I, I share this with you, and it's hard for me to do so. He is a friend. Is a friend. But I do so because I think it demonstrates so much of this text. And it very much demonstrates one who is deepening and growing through the sufferings of life. He wasn't an old man. He had an active and growing ministry. But the Lord took him home Friday. He said this just days before he died. I quote, I know God. I know God as a purpose in all He does. Ultimately, my cancer is to serve God's purpose and to bring glory to Him. It seems that God is most often glorified not through the ease of our lives, but in the trials. Contrary to much popular religious teaching, we need not to be healthy and successful for God to give evidence of His faithfulness. In fact, Christ exalted the Father through suffering for us. Most of the apostles were martyrs. And we are called to take up our cross and to follow. I come as a sinner to Christ. 
I have nothing to offer for my salvation, but I confess my need. I believe His promise that the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to pay for all my sins. I believe in His resurrection from the dead. In Him I am cleansed totally, completely, and forever. And as sure as I will stand before Jesus with a glorified spirit and soul, I will stand before Jesus with a glorified body. In Christ, I am saved. My foremost prayer then must be that Christ would be glorified in my body and yours, whether by life or by death. I know that He is being honored in my body now in ways which He is not honored in the past. Just growth. Stature. He has my attention. I've confessed and forsaken sin with a resolve never available before. I can never be so casual in regards to the suffering of, sufferings of others. And many of my priorities in life have changed. I have also learned how dependent I am upon Him. I've learned how dependent I am upon Him. Now God may want to keep me in my present physical condition. He may choose to heal me. He may will to bring me home quickly. Any option is to His praise and glory. Those are not the words of a man who's simply growing sideways. That is a beautiful, that is a beautiful display of how you die in Christ. That's how you suffer. In utter dependence on the Lord and all for His glory, in all of our ways, acknowledging Him. And for Richard, the straight path led to heaven. As we think through these enticements, And I think they are that. These enticements to grow in stature. To grow in wisdom. As we think through them, I ask you, do you want this? I've been asking myself as we look through this text, what is the point? What is the ultimate purpose here? And I think in part it's meant to create thirst. Do you want it? Do you want this kind of life? Are you happy just relying on your own wisdom and doing things your own way? Or do you say, this is what I want. I want the Father's intimate, corrective love. I want to be able to always trust that His will is being done in my life. I want a life of generous giving to God's work 
so that I can continue in orientation towards serving and blessing others. I want inner refreshment, an invigorated soul resulting from a humbled heart that submits to what is right in the fear of God. I want a life that God steers and directs and protects as I throw myself in dependence upon Him. I want a life where the approval of God and others is, I, is there as I steadfastly prove loyal to my covenant relationships. I want a life that is full and wholesome and alive. I want to be a person that's not just growing old, that's growing up. Do you want that? Then we work backwards. Proverbs 2. What path are you on? Proverbs 1, verse 7, is the fear of the Lord the center focus of your life. Let me tell you, the answer is not self-reformation. The answer is not for us, again, to get our act together and become wise people. The answer in all of this is to walk in the Spirit. The answer is transformation into the likeness likeness of Jesus. In fact, as we look at these qualities of life, what we're seeing here is the face of Christ. That's how Jesus looked. And that's what God did in His life. This was Jesus. An attentive response to the truth. Steadfast love and faithfulness toward others in His covenant relationship. Unwavering trust in the Lord. Humble submission to what is right. Generous giving and worship. Submissive acceptance of divine discipline. Not my will, but yours be done. This is Jesus here. It's a portrait of Him. And to the degree that we align our lives with this, this can be a portrait of who we are. By His grace. It is then, this text, a call to grow up. To mature. And that maturity can only come on this side of the cross as we have come to be delivered from our sin and begin a new life hidden in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Where Christ is active through His Spirit and where we are responding to this kind of life and saying, indeed, I want to be like Christ, then He works His sanctifying purposes and He conforms us into the likeness of our Savior. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it fills our souls with great joy and confidence and encouragement and everywhere in between in all our ways we acknowledge him trusting him to lead us safely home how rich we are in Christ and what joys there are in pursuing wisdom let's ask him to help us father there's a work that we can do as we consider this text paying attention working on our affections being willing to admit sin and consider where we are but there's a work we cannot do a work that we simply cannot accomplish in our own strength I pray Father that by your grace that you will now do that work bringing conviction and change sanctifying energies 
infusing them into our spirits. For those that do not know Christ as Savior, we just turn to you and plead that you'll bring new life. That you'll awaken them to the glories of you as Savior and Lord. And I pray, Father, that through our discussion of this passage this afternoon and this evening in our small groups, I pray, Father, that as we consider these truths through this week, that you will use this passage to create a thirst and to show us the beauty, not the safety, but the beauty of a life that is centered on Christ. Do that work in us, we pray, this day and in these days ahead as we give you praise and thanks in the name of our Savior. Amen.